Welcome to a Shot in the Arm podcast. I'm your host, Ben Plumley, and this is a podcast about global health and human rights. It's brought to you in partnership by the Bay Area Global Health Alliance, a group of businesses in tech and biotech, as well as academics and NGOs, all committed to improving the health of people around the world. You can find out more about them at www.bayareaglobalhealth.org. Well, in this episode, I'm absolutely honoured to be welcoming Robin Gorner, who is, in my mind, somewhat of a Renaissance woman. She's an HIV and gender activist. She's a writer. Uh, She's been a government senior uh, civil servant in the United Kingdom, and she's founded a number of NGOs in health and human rights right around the world. Robin, welcome to a Shot in the Arm podcast. Thrilled to be here, Ben. What a joy. (laughs) Well, I've been dying to have you on the show for quite a while and really to get your sense of what is going on with the COVID-19 pandemic and the, the various responses around the world. But in fact, this is really personal for you, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It is. And thanks for the kind introduction. It's quite fun to be back in touch, Ben, because I think we met over three decades ago. Yeah. yeah. We were obviously in kindergarten. um, And it it was also the early days of the AIDS crisis. And I've worked, as you you mentioned, in various different capacities um, since the mid-1980s. And as someone said it to me, recently, with COVID-19, I've moved from being coach to player. So I worked a great deal alongside some extraordinary women in particular living with HIV. And now I find myself having spent a lot of the year looking at how COVID is very similar to what we went through in the early days of AIDS, how the mystery of trying to understand what's going on is it going to be small or big? Is it going to go everywhere or just a few countries? Are we going to get treatments and vaccines? And suddenly thinking I was bore of the century, knew everything, I went and got it. Um, And I came down with really acute symptoms on the 3rd of May. And that is, um, let me see now, 112 days ago, or maybe 114. I'm slipping in my counting. Um, And I still have symptoms. Um, Now they've changed and varied over the time. But I find myself drawing on all of the early activism that I did, particularly around treatment activism, to ask questions about what on earth is going on in my own body. Um, And it's really quite extraordinary. Um, And so much that I guess I was around and supporting as an ally and comrade and activist in, in the 80s and 90s, when we really didn't know what was going on with HIV and we had no treatments and it was all very confusing and upsetting and distressing, and it is now, but in different ways, that's what the increasingly growing number of us with long COVID are experiencing. And I I spent a lot of today on the phone to an amazing doctor that I've met who became, um, who picked up COVID in hospital. um, And, you know, he's asking the same questions as me. Is it coming back? Am I still infectious? You know, will anyone ever find a treatment for it? Uh, Will I get my mental faculties back because I have this weird brain fog? And, um, you know, will I be able to walk for more than 15 minutes without being exhausted? And and people say in a very good-natured way, oh, you're going to be fine. And yet we aren't yet. Um, And we all hope that it's just a long recovery for the one in 10 of us, it seems, who have this. But we don't know. 
I um, was thinking about you just the other other week. There is a, a, a another podcast called The Bunker, The Bunker Daily, and uh, the CEO of uh, Best for Britain, Naomi Smith, was talking to someone who was experiencing long COVID. It, it mm -hmm. seems like you and 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 the the sense that we're now getting that this isn't just a respiratory disease that passes in a matter of days or weeks, but this is a multi-organ disease that seems to be driven by a, a, a strange overactive immune system. What have your symptoms been like? Well, you know, it is so curious because there, there are also lots of different disease presentations, and that's also what reminds me of early AIDS. Because in early AIDS, you know, we had some people who got really sick with PCP pneumonia and some who got Kaposi's sarcoma cancer all over their bodies and some got it in their lungs and some got more peculiar symptoms. So, you know, everyone had a different story. And that's kind of how it is for us. So one of my kids got COVID and he was really, you know, sick for four or five days, night sweats, the whole works, then back to work. No problems ever since. You know, we know of people who have no symptoms. We know tragically of the people who get appalling respiratory illness, get rushed to hospital on ventilators and sadly die, and sometimes very, very quickly. Um, and those are usually the elderly, usually men, usually people with other confounding uh, conditions like diabetes and, and asthma and so forth. But, you know, what's going on for those of us with long COVID is really peculiar. And what we are increasingly understanding, and we also see this in the really severe cases, is that this virus isn't just getting to our lungs. It's also getting to our cardiac system, our brain, our kidneys, the gastrointestinal tract. So, you know, most of us with long COVID, we, we kind of joke about it a lot in that kind of gallows humor, but, you know, we I so often put weird things in the fridge, um, you know, or stand in the middle of the room and I can't quite remember what I'm doing. I, you know, I, I've never been much of a list writer, but I need my lists now or I would never get anything done. Um, so there is this sort of really weird thing. And I've never really known about my mental processing, except for now, because it doesn't work quite mm. right. One of the other things that, that I think has been very interesting about the way you have responded to COVID, and perhaps that's... Um, uh, because of your your background as an AIDS and gender activist, although somewhere I read that someone called you a venerable or a veteran activist, which uh, I thought I wouldn't I wouldn't try that one with you. But but you chose to come out and you picked the Maverick Citizen, both in terms of an article and indeed their podcast, to come about come out about your status, and and I suppose that's something that comes from the experience of the AIDS movement. But what is it that you're trying to change by, by coming out so directly about your, your own experience with long COVID? Yeah, it's been quite a difficult journey coming out about it, to be honest. Um, and I've been surprised by how difficult it is and quite humbled having spent so much of my life alongside people with HIV who've, who've, who've done that about their own conditions. And I don't want to overstress it. There clearly are very big differences between HIV and COVID. But I felt that it was hugely important for a few reasons. Um, for a start, it was quite, quite ironic because I'd been writing for The Maverick for two or three months about COVID before I got it. Um, and I felt it would have been dishonest to have spent so much time, in essence, sort of educating and talking and, and, and trying to encourage South Africans not to get COVID because 
our response has been so lamentable in the UK. I really hoped that other countries could learn from our tremendous failings. Um, it, it, it's also to me really important because there is this binary in the public imagination. You either have mild asymptomatic COVID or you die of it. And I think it's really important that people understand that, yeah, it's true that if you're under 50, it's pretty unlikely you're going to die of it. But frankly, I wouldn't wish this on anyone. Mm. This is no fun. I can no longer drink alcohol. You know, for me, that's... Oh, my God. I know. It's really challenging. I mean, but my life is genuinely completely changed and limited. And I want people to understand this is no joke. It's no picnic. And it's highly infectious. So we need to be really smart to protect ourselves and to protect others. I also feel that from an HIV perspective, I learned so much from those trailblazing, usually gay men who fought so hard for treatment. And I'm thrilled that there's so much attention to vaccines. Brilliant. I want us to get some treatments and diagnostics that work for the hundreds of thousands of us who are going to live with this thing in our bodies. I don't know whether it's for a year. I don't know whether it's for a lifetime. Who knows? But I want to find out. I'd love to get your sense of how you see the global response has evolved. You've mentioned the UK uh, in... Uh, some terms. And and of course, here I am in the United States, which has, I mean, certainly the special relationship between the US and UK could not be clearer, more clearer, given the execrable way the two countries have responded to the the pandemic. You mentioned South Africa. Are there things that you're seeing that uh, interest you or are concerning you uh, as it pans out? Oh, it's so difficult, isn't it? And it's really hard to criticise countries that are not your own. So I'll be quite happy criticising the UK. Although, thank God for America, because at least you don't make us look as bad as we are. Um, I mean, you do make us look... Anyway, whatever. You know, from the earliest days of the work that, that both you and I have done in HIV, Ben, we've known that health is political. We've known that good public health requires good leaders. And, and you know, Sorry, scary feminist that I am. I'm not the first person to observe that the best responses around the world are are run by women. I mean, just watch Jacinda Ahern. I mean, it makes my heart melt. And, you know, what a woman, the way she's tackled it. Now, obviously, when you've got a small population, you've got an island, it's slightly easier to protect yourself from an infectious disease. But quite frankly, you know, there are models of great responses, evidence-driven responses, taking things seriously, listening to people who understand, which include the people themselves. And then there are the models that we see by blundering male political leaders who refuse to listen to anyone except for their voices in their own heads. And I mean, you know, it, it is an absolute tragedy. And it does remind me horribly of what we saw in South Africa in the Mbeki era. And I was chatting to a friend of mine, a very wonderful man uh, who lives with HIV, about the challenge of living with something in your body when there is wall-to-wall coverage of what a complete and utter disaster your government is making of the response to it. And that, for me, is my life with COVID and was for him his life with AIDS during the Mbeki era in South Africa. My heart does bleed for South Africa. You know, I have a home there. It's a, it's a country I love. I have a family I take care of there. And I was there until March. And, and I used to say that had I not left, I would not have COVID. Now, sadly, I think I would, because unfortunately, a good response has gone bad. Yeah. And I mean, we stay very connected with Yvette Raphael, uh, an HIV activist 
who is playing a leadership role now in the country when it comes to um, to COVID-19. But uh, something else about the global COVID response, uh, and you as a development professional, I, I really want to get your sense of this. We have seen terrific, uh, in a bad way, terrific rates of infections in countries that have spent the last 30 years telling other countries how to respond to pandemics. And um, and while we still have urgent needs across Africa, particularly South Africa, um, do you get the sense that there's a that, that that there's been a bit of hubris and that we ought to be showing a bit of humility? And perhaps there are things that we can learn um, from from other countries. I mean, Southeast Asia, Vietnam immediately comes to mind. But you know, looking at the Nigerian response. Now, when I was first sick. Um, the British answer to being unwell with COVID is stay at home and do nothing and just sweat it out. Oh, and if you think you're about to die, you can phone an ambulance. Now, um, I tried to get health services in the UK and for various personal reasons, I'd moved city. It was incredibly difficult. And when I finally got through to someone, they just said, oh, you know, stay at home and ring an ambulance if you can't breathe. Um, and because of something posted on Facebook, I was taken care of by four doctors around the world. Um, one from South Africa, one from LA, uh, doesn't particularly professionally involved, but the, the doctor in South Africa and the doctor in Malaysia were centrally involved in their responses. But my goodness, they knew what they were doing. Once I started to recover, there was no information in the UK, absolutely none. But all of it was provided to me by the woman who took care of me, who led the, the national response in Malaysia. And I recently passed on her advice to a fellow AIDS activist who um, was recently diagnosed in Vienna. Her case is absolutely atrocious. Mm. Basically, she was outed by uh, the newspaper who spoke about her place of work, who spoke about completely identifying information. Now, you know, happily, she's had a very mild disease course, but the, you know, the appalling stigma around that, the way she was treated by her fellow community, but also the lack of support. And frankly, across Europe, those of us living with COVID get no support from our medical services. And yet in Asia, they do. In South Africa, one of the things they do, which I think is spot on, and we've only just started to adapt our response to here in the UK, is to localise the response. And, you know, we all know pandemics are political, epidemics are political, but they're also local, they're geographically yeah. spatial. And we've done none of that in the UK until now. And, and you know, that's where South Africa was doing so well. So, you know, I, I mean, also, there's no question, Asia got this right. And, and what's so offensive in the UK discourse around this is when you say that people go, oh, they are, you know, they're a bit commie, aren't they? So that's why they got it right, because they're really dictatorial. Well, look at us. Well, precisely, you know, precisely. Freedom and a disaster. Uh, turning to therapeutics and vaccines, and you touched on this right at the start. Uh, one of the things that you and I always used to joke about at the International AIDS Conferences was, ah, AIDS vaccines, only 10 years away. And every <laughs> AIDS conference, we would hear the same message. And, and I suppose my first question to you, uh, before we talk about the balance of therapeutics and vaccines, is how confident do you feel uh, about the enthusiasm that politically we all seem to have for a vaccine that's going to come round the corner? Well, the Russian one's already available, but, you know, that's just going to come round the corner next year and clear everything up. It's so upsetting, isn't it? I mean, it's just 
it's dreadful on so many levels in that I was never a believer in the magic bullet HIV vaccine. I was, I mean, like everyone, I was a hoper. Of course, we would like that. Now, I'm not a, a, I'm not a scientist, but my understanding is that a coronavirus is easier to vaccinate against than a retrovirus. We've had complicated news today uh, in that there was a case in Hong Kong which appears mm. to be reinfection rather than long COVID. Now, it's going to take a while to re-understand whether that genuinely is a case of reinfection. But everything I've seen suggests that, you know, imminent reinfection is not likely, but over a year or two it is possible. This creates huge questions about mounting an immune response through a vaccine. Um, but let's assume that technically it's possible to get a vaccine. And, you know, I'm not qualified to answer that question. But as you say, HIV vaccines always an extra decade on the horizon. Even when we have it, what's going to happen? Countries are going to buy up the whole stock. We're seeing some pretty noxious behavior like that already the prices are going to be too high for most countries but also you can't get a vaccine scaled up quickly and you certainly can't unless you deal with people's attitudes and if we look at what's going on with polio and you see the anti-vaxxers in nigeria in you know northern australia around the world we have very very few vaccine preventable diseases that have been eradicated and that's because human beings are weird and if we don't deal with the weirdness of human beings and how people do and don't adapt to the risks around them, then we're completely lost. Part of what we did so well in early AIDS, and we've kind of lost the plot on a little bit, but what we were amazing at was social behavioral research. Yeah. And we really put a lot of time and effort and money into understanding why is it that people do things. And, you know, I know you're involved with MTV and, and, and I've been around them for a jolly long time too. And you just look at something like MTV Sugar and it's right on the money. You know, you've got to appeal to people in their daily lives and help them to minimize their risks, of pregnancy, HIV, COVID, whatever. And I think until we get to that kind of smart harm reduction intervention, we're, we're just sailing in the wind. So great to have a vaccine, but let's let's deal with the bigger yeah. picture first. And, and the, um, the thing about uh, MTV, the Staying Alive Foundation, that I, I'm lucky to be chair of at the moment, is that this very short series of Alone Together, the cast of MTV Sugar Across Africa connecting and talking to each other in these short bite-sized pieces that are all over all over social media. I think it's 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 brilliant. But the other area that I was really keen to get your thoughts, Robin, is around treatments, around the investment mm -hmm. in therapeutics. And and something that I've I've seen you say around a lesson that we haven't learned with HIV, and that's involving people living with long COVID. Mm. It's really frustrating me at the moment. I mean, you mentioned a couple of great AIDS activists who've got involved, and there are many who've become involved in COVID. And there are a number of us who, who've, you know, sadly either gotten COVID or, or are now living with long COVID. But we must get hold of a mechanism that can help all of these sort of really brilliant people living with long COVID, many of whom are medically trained, to get involved in these conversations. And what I see at the moment, which I find utterly dispiriting, is that the communities that gathered around HIV and TB and malaria are very correctly pushing for a global response, but not seeing enough humility of letting in the people who are living with this. And, you know, our symptoms are weird. And until recently, very few people were talking about them. And and, you know, I'm thrilled that I'm not on a ventilator. I'm delighted that I don't need steroids. But I really, really would like 
to be able to function normally again. And I would like someone to be accelerating efforts into that. I would like to know that the diagnostics are not just cheap and at the point of care, but they're reliable across everyone. And we've got to listen to a number of the people I've now met with with long COVID have had false negative tests. And they're absolutely sure syndromically, you know, they were on the wards caring for COVID patients. They came down with all the symptoms, but they don't have a reliable test. And there's good scientific plausibility as to why, that perhaps why we have long COVID is that our immune responses have not responded well as those with mild COVID. There may be an autoimmune function. There are a number of biologically plausible reasons, but we've got to get people behind that research. And if you don't listen to us, you're not going to know we're there and we're having these weird things. Absolutely. And it 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 sort of brings us into the HIV field. I mean, it has struck me, uh, maybe it's not so visible in, in, in Europe, but um, in the US, I think the AIDS movement has done something. Well, we, we know how to engage people. We know how to um, uh, represent communities. And so we can do it again here. Um, and, and that sort of came to a head with the Black Lives Matter movement that has affected the United States at the same time as COVID. But we've done a pretty pretty bad job, to, if, I, if I'm being honest, about engaging people who are living the experience of COVID. But yeah, I, will, I think, no, sorry, go, go ahead. No, I just think we need to take those principles. You know, we invented something pretty brilliant in the early days of AIDS. We weren't perfect by a very long shot. But some of these core principles, harm minimization, involves people most affected, get behind your social behavioral research and, you know, scale up short, fast, effective research into diagnostics and treatments. Those are some of the things I want to see transferred across um, and also tackle stigma and discrimination. People don't believe me when I say that, you know, that, that there is stigma and discrimination, but I can, you know, go out with my mask on, stand a good two meters away from anyone and say, oh, I've had COVID or I have long COVID and they will jump a mile. And they're all standing there hugging each other, not wearing a mask, not washing their hands. And you go, you're frightened of me and I'm probably the least yeah. risky person to you in this street. Um, you know, it, it is extraordinary. We've got to help people break through that stuff. So so then going back to AIDS and going back to your involvement in, in, in that movement, I uh, first knew you uh, when I was a very green uh, buddy volunteer at the Terence Higgins Trust. Uh, and mm -hmm. I think you were deputy executive director, and I, I sort of looked up to you as this this great leader. What what brought you into the, what dragged you into AIDS? I wasn't deputy executive director. I was obviously just wishing I was, but anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm glad that's how I behave. How very grand of me. Um, I was I was a student. I was um, I was at Oxford, and I was studying theology. I wasn't entirely sure where I was studying theology, but I was having a crackingly good time. Uh, I was going to wild parties, I confess, to having gone to the monks and nuns party where we all lay in coffins. And there was one B. Johnson uh, in another coffin. I know, sorry, not, not a coffin with me, let me say. What a shame we didn't put the lid on. Um, but, um, you know, there, it was very much those hedonistic days of the 1980s. And it was a bizarre time because not only was Boris Johnson there, Jeremy Hunt was there, David Cameron was there. I mean, this whole raft of them who are now running the country. Um, and as well as having a fantastic time partying, I also did a huge amount of theatre. That was my love. I'd been involved in theatre from actually very young in my childhood. I'd been an actor at, at the age of 10 in professional plays and I adored it. 
And then I, I, I realized I wasn't very good at it. Um, but uh, one summer, uh, my best friend died in the house that I shared. Um, and he was gay. And he was very happily, openly gay. He was 19 years old. He was the youngest of our batch. And he'd gone home to visit his boyfriend and got killed in a car crash. And it was, you know, one of those unbelievable traumas mm. that you experience in your in your student days. Um, and a few weeks after he died, I went out with his sister and another of our friends and we went to the theatre in London. And it was really a night out to talk about Jonathan and, and to, you know, reminisce. And he, he'd love the theatre too. That's why we were sharing a house together. And I saw The Normal Heart by Larry Kramer. And it was just unbelievable. I mean, it was a I thought it was a pretty dreary play at the time. Well, that's what my diary now tells me, which I recently reread. Um, but I thought the performances were quite good. But the thing that really got to me was the message. Mm. Uh, my diary of that evening talks about my despair at this West End audience rattling its jewellery. And I went out at the end of the show and the Terence Higgins Trust was rattling its buckets and asking for money. And of course, I was a poor student, but they had a little flyer saying, would you like to be a volunteer? So... You know, I was full of righteous indignation at what I'd seen about the horror of the mistreatment of gay men in the early days of the AIDS crisis in New York, which was only a couple of years before. I was horrified at the way Jonathan and his boyfriend had been treated by my pompous Oxford college. And I signed up as a volunteer. And when a year later I finished my degree, I'd spent most of that year no longer acting, but instead running around Oxford, stuffing safer sex leaflets into the pigeonholes of anybody I thought might be gay. Um, and I, I moved to London and said, OK, you've got me for a year. I'll sign on the dole. Use me. Mm. And one of the things I did was look after the buddies, which is why you tripped across me, you poor soul. Yes. Well, I remember um, uh, the northwest quadrant of London being... Um, uh, assigned to at a very early on um, a, a Ugandan family, uh, a mother and two kids, and um, I forget the volunteer coordinator who reported to you, but I do remember her saying, "Ben, dear, this is not working for her, and it's not going to work for you." Uh, but uh, I, I that that's that's sort of what got me into it. But both you and I evolved our career in HIV into the global response. And I am so really interested to know what made you go global. Made me go global. You know, some of it was an accident. Um, so after a couple of years with the Terence Higgins Trust, where I'd done the sort of buddying stuff for a year or so, and then I became a member of the board of directors and I was I'd gone back to Oxford to work on the city response, nothing to do with the university. Um Terence Higgins Trust got the opportunity to send someone to Europe. And they went, oh, Robin, you speak French, don't you? I was like, yeah. And they said, oh, would you mind going to live in Luxembourg for a year and helping to coordinate the European Commission as, as was their response on AIDS? Just 12 countries. Oh, okay, fine. So off I went to, to become a bureaucrat um, in Europe. Now, it was utterly miserable being a bureaucrat in Europe. Um, uh, but I would wish to God we hadn't left. But, um, you know, th this was 91. And it was really the beginning of the global response. So by encountering what was going on in different countries around Europe, I started to bump up against um, the global network of people living with HIV and ACASO, the International Community of AIDS Service Organizations. And it was really extraordinary just being able to support people as they shared information um, and just get involved in that way. And, and then I went back to the UK after a while um, 
I spent a little bit of time working for Jonathan Mann, who was the most mm. phenomenal human who set up the um, Health and Human Rights Centre at Harvard University after he left WHO. And at WHO, he had set up the Global Programme on AIDS and basically left after a big spat with the head of WHO was utterly corrupt. Um, and, you know, that he was a completely visionary man who understood things that we now think are new in our response to AIDS. And, and it was just this extraordinary education. But the other thing that was fundamental for me was watching women becoming involved and not having their needs met. And there I was, this scary feminist who tripped her way into the AIDS movement a bit unexpectedly through the theatre, discovering that there were women all over the world who were not getting their needs met. Um, and there were women in London who were not being taken seriously for um, the situation they were facing. And um, it just became hugely important to me and it felt personal but not personal like this stuff is now. But, you know, you your career moved on into sexual reproductive rights and women's rights. And I always it always struck me that, you know, on one level, those were two very siloed global development programs, but you eased mm. between them very, very seamlessly. And and as you look at the situation today with, you know, global attention on COVID, um, uh, what are your concerns as it relates to girls and women? I mean, both in terms of, you know, them being stuck at home and potentially at risk uh, in terms of domestic violence, but, but also in terms of the impact that the redirection of resources may have on those areas. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I just want to say, you know, reproductive and sexual rights and HIV weren't always split. In fact, the I remember meeting Peter Piot for the first time in the late 80s. He was at Antwerp as a researcher. And we went together to a conference which was about sexual health. And I found the documents from it recently. And one of the top recommendations was integrate the two, which is now what we keep saying in all our documents. You know, they were linked. And then what happened was this massive burst of money came in for AIDS, which was brilliant. But they caused this incredible competition between um, the women's movement and sexual and reproductive rights and, and, and HIV. And I wrote about this in the early 90s. I wrote one of the first books on women and AIDS. And, and at that time, I was frustrated that the world didn't come together. And now, you know, I, I was frustrated in the 90s that women as sexual beings were not being acknowledged. So my book was called Vamps, Virgins and Victims. And I felt there was this sort of really toxic description of us, which never allowed us to be sexual beings in our own rights. Um, and how I got more involved in, in, in the whole uh, SRHR movement was that I wanted to take what we'd learned in AIDS into that environment because I got frustrated that, you know, women's sexual and reproductive rights are not well treated. Our bodily autonomy is ignored. You know, when there's a battleground, we're the first to suffer. And in terms of COVID, absolutely. I mean, every country is reporting dramatic increases in gender-based violence. Um, you know, there's the big billboards here in London saying, you know, um, abusers always work from home. The, the rates of domestic violence that have been associated with lockdown in every single country are horrendous. Um, and the responses that are being mounted by most authorities are completely weak. You know, for one period of time during lockdown, it was unsure whether if women were fleeing an abuser, they were allowed to get out of their houses. Um, the other thing we're seeing, of course, is that, you know, with this shift of, of human resources in countries, the people who've been working in clinics are getting redeployed into 
COVID, understandable, but the money is also disappearing quickly. Yeah. So the other thing that's happened in many countries is no abortion services, or you can't travel for abortion and we don't really want to provide you with pills to do it at your own at home. You know, this is a complete breach of human rights. And in Kenya recently, we've seen a massive increase of teenage pregnancies directly related to the inability to reach women with sexual and reproductive services. And, you know, it doesn't take a genius to go, women are at home, they're being beaten, they're being raped, they get pregnant, they don't get any abortions. You know, what an appalling mess we're creating yeah. for ourselves. And we don't necessarily have the, the, the tools or the resources when we dust ourselves down to build the kind of comprehensive response. Uh, it, 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 it bothers me a lot, but I think that, you know, that's sort of, that's another nightmare for another, another time, as it were. Um, talking of nightmares, um, you live in Brexit land, and uh, <laughs> anyone who knows anything about me and watches um, uh, or listens to my podcast knows my view on Brexit, that it stinks, uh, and it's, mm -hmm. uh, um, it's, it's a final realisation of, a, of, a, of a, a, a society that hasn't come to terms with the loss of empire, an empire not being anything decent whatsoever. But anyway, that being said... What's your view on how Brexit will affect Britain's global health work and its standing in global development? It's just such a disaster, isn't it? I mean, I don't even know where to start. I mean, there are so many layers to this. So I used to work at DFID, as you know, DFID, which has now been renamed Fucked Off, or I think that's roughly what the acronym means, the Foreign and Commonwealth Development Office, which all I can hope is some Mandarin was having a bit of a laugh. Um, but, you know, we were one of the proudest, best development programs in the world because we were really ethically solid. We believed in countries leading their own agendas, you know. And now look at us. We've rolled it into some poxy protectionist foreign agenda, which is about protecting our rights. Um, and I think these things are all very linked, you know. When I was a, a civil servant and did a little bit of negotiating, for example, in the UN, we would work in coordination with Europeans. Now we can't do that, yeah. you know, and it's just it's a it's a, just a disaster. We're pitted against each other at a very parochial level. It's not that parochial, but in terms of COVID, what a disaster. We didn't bulk procure PPE. We could have done, but we chose not to go to the meetings with the Europeans, even though we had the right, but, you know, we don't want to look too friendly to them, do we? There are really credible um, uh, documents showing how some of the worst behaviour of our Prime Minister, the neglect of COBRA, the unwillingness to look at what the data was showing and the, you know, incoming storm of the pandemic was all linked to him posturing around trade. Well, um, how funny, because uh, that's, uh, that's an experience that's very similar this side of the Atlantic as well. Um, unbelievable. But look, um, we're coming to the end of the, of the episode. And uh, I, at this point, I normally ask people how they are staying, staying sane during this period of, of lockdown and sheltering in place. Uh, but I, I can't imagine what it must have been like for you. You you have one of the sharpest minds that I know. And and listening to you to dis describing the brain fog that you have had to, to go through and endure during these last few months, 
what has been your guiding star? What's sort of helped you through it? Gosh, it's a lovely question. Thank you. Um, I don't, you know, it's a bit strange this, but very early on in lockdown, before I got COVID, I clicked on a video by Henriette Four, the head of UNICEF. And she was giving a talk to the UNICEF staff about the challenges of lockdown. She had five things that you should do. Um, and, and I think I sort of adopted them, not always intentionally, but they have carried me through very well. One was to stick to or create a routine. Well, I've never been very good with routines, but I've developed one, which is that I've joined an online writing group. And every day I sit for at least one hour, sometimes three hours, writing in community. And it's really amazing. So I've been working on a book, which is like, you know, still not quite there. But that's been phenomenal. One of the other things she talked about was always making space for uh, connecting with people. And I think I've, like many of us, done a huge amount of that. And that's been really lovely, reconnecting with people from my past. The third thing she said was to have fun. And for a while, I carried on pretending I was learning to play the cello. I've slightly given that up. But I think I have made myself have fun every day in some small way. And one of the ways in which I track that is that I um, keep a gratitude diary, which sounds really new age. But friends of mine who are therapists tell me it's actually been researched to mm -hmm. be proven that it keeps people in a great mental space. And, you know, even in the bleakest days, being able and pushing myself to reflect on at least three things I'm grateful for, small things and big things. And you know, human kindness is a wonderful thing. And there is a lot of it out there if you just allow yourself to find it. And, and I suppose one of the things about living through the AIDS crisis and the way that we have done is that it teaches you to accept change and to be flexible and to know that you don't know. Yeah. And, and none of us know what's coming next. And um, yeah, I think that helps me through a bit. I think that acceptance that we don't know is possibly the biggest gift the AIDS movement can give society now, and and but you still make it through. You still you still get there in the end. And you know, one of the things with that, which I I often reflect on, that there's a very great man called Simon Watney who was fundamental mm. to the early response to AIDS and indeed to gay culture. And I recall in the '90s when we'd lost hundreds of people, talking about multiple grief and what what it would be like. It was before we had treatments and we wondered how damaged we would be by it. And, and I'm sure we are, but, but we are differently damaged than how we imagined. We, we had these quite apocalyptic visions of what the future would be. And somehow the resilience of our global AIDS communities and you know, the goodness that we have created collectively is something that I think the world increasingly sees. And I think that it, it will never take away the sadness of the people that we lost and the people that we lost far too young and the fact that we lost so many of them. Um, and we must never, ever forget that. Um, and yet, I think together we've all built something pretty strong and powerful. And so I think that gives most of us a certain inner resilience as we face something as, as strange as this. Well, I think that is just such a wonderful um realistic but really very optimistic way to to uh to bring this episode to a close 
Robin, please, please stay in touch and, and, you know, tell us how you're doing and how you're feeling. And, and if there are things happening on the policy front that you're getting absolutely fucked up and angry about, uh, come back anytime and, 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 you know, share those with us and we'll get those out for you. It's been a real honor to have you on the show. Um, Robin Gorner, you are a shot in the arm. <laughs> <laughs> better than a fantasy covid vaccine <laughs> great thank you Bennett. thank really you fun. well that's it for this episode thanks so much to robin gorner thanks also to the bay area global health alliance thanks to our director eric aspera of newsdoc media and a special thanks to you we'd love to know your thoughts on this and other episodes and suggestions for future shows as always, you can find us at Twitter and YouTube and Facebook at Shot Arm Podcast, and you can find us wherever you download your podcasts. Well, I hope you take good care of yourself in the coming week. Don't forget to wear your mask. And this week, I am wearing a mask from one of our regular listeners. It's the Scottish Salter, and it's from Margaret Cowie, a regular subscriber. So have a good week. And have a healthy week, everybody. 